Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. All right, welcome back to the Know Thyself History Podcast, where we try to resurrect sense and meaning from the dust of a billion factoids. So have a nice listen, enjoy the old-timey medieval German music, because things are going to get a lot uglier. We are knee-deep in our series of mob behavior and mass delusions, and we're still talking about the witch mania, the witch persecutions of the Middle Ages and early modern period. Events that have certainly left their mark on our collective consciousness. In fact, we still know what a witch hunt is. Probably heard the term about half a billion times in the last couple of years. But it does evoke images of a selective purge of people whose society, those in power and control, want to rid themselves of. It evokes images of unfair legal practices like not being able to face your accusers, never knowing what the evidence is against you, coerced confessions, and a lack of any legal restraint or boundaries on the side of the prosecution. These witch hunts really did leave their mark. In fact, look at Salem, Massachusetts. Salem is a town that is still infamous to this very day for events that happened over 325 years ago. For about 15 months, from the winter of 1692 to the spring of 1693, people in Salem, Massachusetts and the surrounding areas lost their collective minds. They're already religious fanatics, already filled with superstitious dread. But then a few accusations get leveled, and they're off to the witch hunt races. By the time the dust settles from all this, 200 people had been accused. 19 people who had been hung. 14 women and 5 men. Another man was crushed to death as they tried to extract a confession out of him. And 5 people who were being held in jail died. Certainly not an acceptable number of casualties to a delusion. But if you just look at the numbers, that isn't a huge death rate. More people probably died of cold and exposure and disease during that same time than died of witch persecution. But because of the injustice, the outrage of it all, they stay stuck in our minds. We still remember them 325 years later. In fact, the crucible by Arthur Miller went a long way to keeping them fresh in our minds. But as bad as the Salem witch trials were, we have to say they were paltry. They were innocuous compared to the trials in Europe. There, there were thousands of people dying. On the continent in the 16th and 17th centuries, thousands of people died in witch trials. The conviction rates approached 90%. The tortures were much more extreme. And the sentences when they carried them out were sadistic. They were brutal. I mean, imagine you got a group of very intelligent and imaginative people into a room and ask them to come up with the worst possible thing you could do to another human being. Well, you could always hold them against their will, not tell them about the charges against them, force them to admit to things that they never did that are morally repugnant to them, ask them to betray their friends, force them under extreme torture 
to implicate the people they love most in the world and subject them to the same fate, and then burn them at the stake so that they die in a horrible way and reassure them that they're going to hell for all eternity after this. Oh, and by the way, we're going to take all of your land and property and leave your children penniless to starve to death in these streets. I mean, that last part was an especially nice touch. So after all these intelligent people get done brainstorming, you realize they've nailed it. There's not one thing you could do to another human being that's worse than what they just came up with. So you decide to do exactly that. And not only that, but do it to thousands and thousands of people. And that pretty much sums up the witch trials in Europe in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period. How is this possible? So as I read through the accounts of the various witch persecutions, I was left with a choice to make. Which one do I talk about? I can't cover them all, so I want to get one that has some of the typical elements of a witch trial, but also a little extraordinary. I want one that is well documented enough to kind of catalog all the atrocities, yet one that remains a little bit obscure that we're not quite as familiar with. I don't want it to be cliché. And so as I went through this checklist, I realized there's only one set of witch trials I wanted to talk about. That was Trier. We don't hear much about the Trier witch trials today, but they were some of the largest, some of the fiercest witch trials in all history. They took place in Germany in the late 16th century. They were one of the earliest German witch trials, and the Germans really knew how to burn them some witches. Now, I don't want to say anything too disparaging about Germany, but we have to admit that historically they were very apt at mounting witch trials and pogroms of all sorts. And Trier is just one of what I call the tetrad of large-scale German witch trials. There was Trier, Fulda, Würzburg, and Bamberg. All of them were German witch trials. All of them horrible atrocities. Trier might have been the largest, and it was the earliest. And Trier, like so many of the other witch trials, had many, many nameless victims. A couple named victims. It had heroes, actual heroes. And I don't say this lightly, it had two of the most reprehensible, two of the most odious people I've even come across. Now, I know I've done a series on the ten worst people ever to live. These two might make it on that list if I were to redo it. How is this possible? And the sad thing is, they were just a type. A type that sprung up all over Europe during the witch mania. I don't really know what it is, but of all the evil people in history, I have to say that it's the pious evildoers that I find the most, I don't know what the word is, distasteful. I just can't stand their smug sanctimony. And yet they're actually pretty common. Maybe, you know, we're told that power corrupts. Although I think power actually attracts scoundrels and narcissists and then reveals their pathology. But there's something special about people who claim to speak for God, to be the divine representative on earth to the unwashed masses that makes them especially hard to stomach. But let's get to Trier. So we know that to get a fire started, you have to have the right conditions. You have to have some dry fuel, have to have oxygen, but then you need a spark to get the whole thing going. Well, the city of Trier in southern Germany, 1581, there was plenty of dry, superstitious, and theological tinder, and all that was needed was a spark to get it going. Trier is a city on the banks of the Moselle River in southern Germany. It's right on the border with Luxembourg. Actually, the birthplace of Karl Marx, so a little factoid there. It was actually a pretty important city at the time. The University of Trier was founded in 1473, so just over a hundred years before the events we're about to describe took place. That university was closed in 1798 when the French were administering the area where Trier is. 
The city itself was probably founded by the Celts in the late 4th century BC. In fact, the city could probably lay claim to the title of Germany's oldest city. Now, there is a beautiful cathedral in Trier that was built since about 1270. You can see it to this day. And if there's a cathedral like that, that means that it was once the seat of a prince-bishop, one who ruled over the region. A prince-bishop is exactly what it sounds like. Secular and religious ruler all rolled into one. And if that doesn't sound like a recipe for abuse, you aren't reading your history. The evidence shows, now I want to put this delicately, I suppose, but the evidence seems pretty incontrovertible that around this time, these prince bishops, as holy as they were, might have been motivated by the same carnal desires as the rest of the populace. Surprise, surprise. In fact, a lot of the time it seemed like they were big bosses of some kind of crime syndicate. But anyway, the Archbishop Elector of Trier was an important prince. He ruled over a land from the French border all the way to the Rhine. And not only that, he had ecclesiastical power also. As an elector, the Archbishop of Trier was one of only seven people who could choose the next Holy Roman Emperor. So this was a very powerful and prestigious position. So in the year 1581, a man named Johann von Schonenberg, John of the Beautiful Mountain, was appointed to be the Archbishop of Trier. He occupies that seat until 1599, the year of his death, and to this day he still lies buried in the Cathedral of Trier. The noble and powerful people who were buried in such pomp and circumstance had a specific goal in mind. That is, when the glorious resurrection of the dead came, he would be resurrected in the very cathedral that he occupied during his years of power, his beloved cathedral. So as I learned about his life, it's a little bit tempting to just pull up a chair and kind of sit there waiting for the resurrection of the dead, because there are a few things that I would love to say to the man. And frankly, it wouldn't be a bad place to pass some time because I love, it's a beautiful cathedral, just like I said. I have to say, I love the grandeur and the splendor, the beauty of these European cathedrals. But then I have to stop and think what it would have looked like to somebody being tortured there, somebody being shamed there, persecuted, or executed outside its grounds. But I digress again. Let's go back to Bishop Beautiful Mountain. Johann von Schonenberg. We do not know too much about him, but one thing we do know is that he was a real fanboy for the Jesuit order. He loved the Jesuits. In fact, he called himself wonderfully addicted to the Society of Jesus and even built a college for them at the University of Trier. In fact, he loved Ignatius Loyola, the society's founder, but Ignatius was a military man, and he organized his society of Christian soldiers to follow a military discipline. Back in the late 16th century, the way that people like Johann von Schonenberg and those of his ilk would demonstrate their solidarity with the Jesuits, whether rightly or wrongly, was to prove himself a good soldier. And effectively, what that meant was to conduct a series of purges. And at that time, according to Bishop von Schonenberg, there were three main groups that needed a good purging. Walking, breathing offenses to God and church in his eyes. And those three groups were, predictably, Protestants, Jews, and witches. And it was especially among the witches that von Schonenberg distinguished himself as a world-class purger, a world-class persecutor of heretics. So today's events begin at the early height of the witch craze in Europe. That witch craze lasted between about 1580 and 1630, 50 years of mania. It might surprise you to know that the condemnation of witches, the idea that they should be hunted and persecuted, was not unanimous even at that time. But more and more, people who disagreed with witch persecutions had to keep quiet. It was becoming very dangerous to be on the wrong side of the witch question. 
Just 20 years before the events at Trier, there was a physician and theologian named Weyer who published a series of works essentially refuting the entire existence of witches and the entire witch craze. He went so far as to point out that the Greek word that had been translated into witch and sorceress probably just meant poisoner in its original context. Now this Weyer was a nutjob demonologist occultist in his own right, but he was way ahead of his time in other ways. He poured contempt on the entire witch hunting enterprise and the Malleus Maleficarum. He might have been one of the first people ever to use the term mentally ill. Those two words together, mentally ill. He said that many of the people who were accused of witchcraft were mentally ill. And his whole argument amounted to the fact that nobody should ever be accused of witchcraft because it's nonsense. There is no crime of witchcraft. The crime of witchcraft is literally impossible. You can't lend any credence to all the descriptions of witch magic. And so, of course, since there is no crime possible, you can't convict somebody of that crime. Most of the people who were accused of witchcraft, he thought, had some kind of mental disturbance, which he usually called melancholy. And most heretical, most controversial of all, and I love this part the best, he said that the members of the clergy were actually serving the devil themselves inadvertently through the prosecution and murder of innocent human beings. So you gotta love this guy Wire calling it like it obviously must have appeared to many people. You wonder how he got away with it. The only way he could have gotten away with it is through the protection of his patron, William the Rich. So even though Wire's character and his writing was attacked by the clergy, both Protestant and Catholic clergy, he didn't get killed. So there were some humane voices like Wire's, but they're often drowned out in a craze. The more histrionic voices rise to the top. And that's what happened 20 years later in the town of Trier. The witch huts began shortly after Johann von Schoenenberg was seated in 1581. They began in the countryside first, stayed in the countryside for a few years, and then by 1587, they engulfed the entire city of Trier itself. In this city of Trier alone, there were about 370 deaths recorded. The death toll in the surrounding countryside might have been much higher. As many as a thousand people might have been killed in the Trier witch craze. According to a couple sources I read, that figure, close to a thousand, makes the Trier witch trials the largest mass execution of civilians during peacetime. Not during war, but during peacetime in European history. Now why was there so much dry kindling in that region? Why were the conditions so perfect for a good witch hunt in Trier in 1581? It could be due to some pressures that were mounting on the population at the time. A great pan-European famine had just ended. It had lasted from 1569 to 1574. After a respite of a few years, another pan-European famine was ramping up in 1585. A number of works have examined the link between weather and witch trials. Kind of a fascinating area of research. In fact, people have pointed out that many times explicitly during the trial, witches would be accused of messing with the weather. They must have thought these witches had godlike powers. Let me read you a quote from a witch trial. It wasn't Trier, but another one. It says, quote, In the year 1626, on the 27th of May, the vineyards of the bishoprics of Bamberg and Würzburg in Franconia all froze over as did the grain fields, which rotted in any case. Everything froze like never before remembered, causing great inflation of prices. There followed great lamentation and pleading among the common rabble, questioning why his princely grace delayed so long in punishing the sorcerers and witches for spoiling their crops since the beginning of the year." End quote. Other studies have documented the correlation between grain prices rising and witch trials starting. 
and there seems to be a strong correlation. These poor people, they saw the hand of witches everywhere. There was a papal bull that opens the Malleus Maleficarum, and in that papal bull, Pope Innocent recognizes the power of witches in the destruction of crops. He says, quote, It has indeed lately come to our ears, our being the Pope, Many persons of both sexes have blasted the produce of the earth, the grapes of the vine, the fruits of the trees, vineyards, orchards, meadows, pasture land, corn, wheat, and all other cereals. End quote. So that's why we need the Malleus Maleficarum. We need to persecute the witches because it has come to the Pope's attention that many persons have been blasting the earth. So along with the precarious crop and food situations in the area of Trier around this time, there were also other pressures. One pressure was Protestantism. Martin Luther had been dead for 30 or so years, but his Protestantism was spreading and it was threatening all the old power structures. So there was food insecurity, there was pressure from heretics, and then the third factor was the presence of Johann von Schonenberg himself. He was a man who was cynical in his use of power. He would resort to any extreme of violence to maintain his station. So with these kind of pressures and with this kind of person in charge, all that was required was one little spark to set the whole thing off. And there would actually be two sparks. One was a great hailstorm. A hailstorm came and destroyed most of the crops around Trier. And then came an eight-year-old boy. This eight-year-old boy claimed that he had been taken to a witch's Sabbath by other people who he named. He had been forced to eat the brain of a cat at a feast attended by demons. When the boy refused to renounce God, he was beaten up, and then ever since he'd been tormented at night by witches. So he's recounting all this with a straight face. Looks like he's being really, really honest after all. And then the boy drops his bomb. He says that there is an evil witch plot to kill the Archbishop. Johann von Schonenberg himself was in grave danger from a witch plot. It's hard to say exactly how this testimony was received. One author says it was the actual beginning of the witch craze. The other says it just merely raised the level of anxiety that was already there. This is how a surviving contemporary account described the beginning of the witch trials in Trier. This is priceless. We have the handwritten account from a church canon, which is a cathedral priest, a man named Linden, and he wrote this, quote, Inasmuch as it was popularly believed that the continued sterility of the many years was caused by witches through the malice of the devil, the whole country rose to exterminate the witches, end quote. This is great stuff. This priest seems to have had a little bit of the skeptic, the realist in him. Because the next thing he writes is this, quote, This movement was promoted by many in office who hoped wealth from the persecution. And so from court to court throughout the towns and villages of all the dioceses scurried special accusers, inquisitors, notaries, jurors, judges, constables, dragging to trial and torture human beings of both sexes and burning them in great numbers." End quote. I love how he seems to distinguish between the motivations of the common people who feared for the continued sterility of the land from the people in office who he clearly sees as wanting to make a buck from the witch trials. And I think Canon Linden was also ahead of his time here in humanizing the victims of these trials because he says this, quote, constables dragging to trial and torture human beings of both sexes and burning them, end quote. So he realized that these were human beings that were being dragged to trial and tortured in great numbers. How is this possible? Tell you, that's a great question, Teofilo. So I'm going to take a moment and talk about the use of torture. According to Chris Hudson from the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland, he wrote a paper called Witch Trials, Discontent in Early Modern Europe. 
And in that paper, he writes, quote, The use of torture played a big part in witch trials. Reintroduced into Europe in the mid-13th century, its use became more frequent after Pope Paul II declared witchcraft crimen acceptin. That allowed torture to be used without limit. The frequent use of torture had the effect of increasing the numbers of victims caught up in the worst panics, as suspects would, under duress, name others from the region as witches. Under such circumstances, suspects also found themselves confessing to whatever the Inquisitor put to them, thus having the effect of confirming to onlookers the more colorful and lurid activities that witches supposedly got up to. In England, where torture was not used, witch panics were more mild, and the beliefs in the diabolism aspects of witch trials less apparent. In those cases where torture was routinely used, 95% of defendants were found guilty, compared to less than 50% in cases in England. End quote. So in a very real way, these witch trials depended entirely on torture to keep the fires burning bright. They could get people to confess to anything they wanted, of course, and they could then create a great uniformity of the crimes which witches were supposed to commit. And that, of course, led to more people accepting the narratives as veridical, because if everybody's admitting to the same thing, there must be some commonality. There must be something there. Even during the trials in Trier, this Canon Linden, the same person we've been quoting, wrote about the effects of torture. He said, quote, Scarcely any of those who were accused escaped punishment nor were spared even the leading men of the city of Trier. For the judge, two burgermeisters, several counselors and associate judges, canons of sundry collegiate churches, parish priests, rural deans were swept away in this ruin. So far at length did the madness of the furious populace and of the courts go with this thirst for blood and booty that there was scarcely anybody who was not smirched by some suspicion of this crime. End quote. And of course that makes sense if you look at the exponential way that torture spread the accusations. Every time they had a suspected witch in and began torturing them, they forced them to name several of their associates who were also witches. And of course this would have the effect of every single person in the region being named several times as complicit in their nefarious witcheries. According to some trial records, some of the poor wretches who were being broken by torture would actually beg to know which names they wanted to implicate. They would give them any name they wanted, they just needed to know who they were looking for. And of course, as the accusations piled up with a 95% conviction rate, the death toll rose too. It had the paradoxical effect of robbing the land of the very people who needed to tend the crops. In fact, in some villages, the death rate was so high that they essentially ceased to function. They were no longer productive. Two villages in the region of Trier were cleared of all of their women except for one woman. Only one woman was left alive in two of the villages in the region. Think about the options these people had once they were accused of witchcraft. They could either face the unbearable agony of torture. And when I say unbearable, I'm not speaking hyperbolically. I mean, you couldn't bear it. Nobody could stand up under torture. The average time that it took for people to break under torture was about one day. Some people could hold out much longer. Some people began talking even before the torture began. Just the threat of torture caused them to start singing like canaries. But you could endure unbearable torture in an attempt to save your life. Because the other choice you had was to admit to the crime of witchcraft and be burned alive, to die again in unbearable agony. The average time between an accusation being leveled against someone for witchcraft and that person being burned alive 
was about 20 days. That's how brutally effective torture was, and that's what it meant when Pope Paul II declared witchcraft to be crime and acceptance, which meant that any accused witch could be tortured without limit. So those were your options as an accused witch. We might never know how many people, as soon as they heard an accusation of witchcraft was coming their way, simply ended their own lives. Now, to really bring home the horror of the plight of the people who were accused of witchcraft, and also the maddening, infuriating injustice of these witch trials, I want to share with you something that is probably the worst thing you will ever hear in your entire life. Compliments of the Know Thyself History podcast. I know I'm not selling it very well. But actually, this is a priceless document. Not only because it is so rare, but also because of what it reveals. This is a document from another witch trial. This is from actually the Bamberg witch trials. But I think it undoubtedly speaks to the same methods used by the witch persecutors and also the same human desperation. It's amazing we even have this letter because no communication was allowed between accused witches and the outside world. But this man somehow was able to bribe or appeal to the good graces of his jailer to get a letter out to his daughter before he was killed. The man is named Johannes Unius, and at one time before his accusation, he had been a Burgermeister. So he was a man of some standing in the community. These German witch trials give the lie to the idea that it was only helpless old poor women who were killed during witch trials. It was often people in power. Often the motivation seems to have been political. Johannes Unius was eventually convicted of witchcraft. We have his trial record and we have his confession. This from his trial record is the Fargo of nonsense to which he pled guilty after being tortured. Apparently he was tortured with thumbscrews and didn't reveal anything. He then had his legs crushed in vices and again didn't reveal anything. But finally he had to face the strapado, which is hands tied behind the back and then hoisted into the air by your wrists. That eventually caused him to sign the following confession. I will now quote from the court record, except where I note that I am paraphrasing. At the beginning, in fact, it says that in the year 1624, he had a lawsuit that went very badly, and he lost almost all of his money. Then it says, in the month of August in 1624, he had gone out into his orchard at Friedrich Bruchenbroschen or whatever it is, and as he sat there in thought, there had come to him a woman like a grassmaid, who had asked him why he sat there so sorrowful. He had answered that he was not yet despondent, but she had led him by seductive speeches to yield him to her will. And thereafter this wench had changed into the form of a goat, which bleated and said, Now you see with whom you have had to do. You must be mine, or I will forthwith break your neck. Thereupon he had been frightened and trembled all over for fear. Then the transformed spirit had seized him by the throat and demanded that he should renounce God Almighty. So it sounds like the goat had him by the throat, was threatening to shake him up like a rag doll if he didn't denounce God. Whereupon Unius said, God forbid. And thereupon the spirit vanished through the power of these words. Yet it came straight away back, brought more people with it, and persistently demanded of him that he renounce God in heaven and all the heavenly host, by which terrible threatening he was obliged to speak this formula. I, Johannes Unius, I renounce God in heaven and his host, and will henceforth recognize the devil as my God. After the renunciation, he was so far persuaded by those present and by the evil spirit that he suffered himself to be otherwise baptized in the evil spirit's name. His name was then changed to Crix. His paramour he had to call Vixen. Those present had congratulated him in Beelzebub's name and said that they were now all alike. It then goes on to say that his paramour, this goat woman, 
had promised to give him money from time to time and to take him to the witch gatherings. I quote from the section on witch gatherings. Whenever he wished to ride forth to the witch Sabbath, a black dog had come before his bed, which said to him that he must go with him. Whereupon he had seated himself upon the dog, and the dog had raised himself in the devil's name, and so had fared forth. End quote. There's a lot more just as convincing information in this confession. In fact, he says that the paramour of his, this vixen goat woman, wanted him to kill his own children, but he just couldn't do it. So he got beaten up for that. Anyway, it goes on, and he signs this confession. Now I have to ask, do you think there were three people on any continent over the age of 10 who would have believed any of this twaddle? And yet Johannes Junius signed it and was about to die for these unspeakable, fanciful acts. Here we have the letter that somehow managed to survive as contraband, sneaked out by his jailer to his daughter. That's one of the only accounts from the victim's point of view of what these trials were like. And again, caveat auditor, it is not pleasant to hear. It says the following, quote, Many hundred thousand good knights, dearly beloved daughter Veronica. Innocent have I come into prison. Innocent have I been tortured. Innocent must I die. For whoever comes into the witch prison must become a witch or be tortured until he invents something out of his head and God pity him, bethinks him of something. I will tell you how it has gone with me. When I was first put to the torture, Dr. Braun and Dr. Kotz and two strange doctors were there. Then Dr. Braun asks me, Kinsman, how come you here? I answer, through falsehood, through misfortune. Hear you, he says, you are a witch. Will you confess it voluntarily? If not, we will bring in witnesses and the executioner for you. I said, I am no witch. I have a pure conscience in the matter. If there are a thousand witnesses, I am not anxious, but I'll gladly hear the witnesses. Now the chancellor's son was placed before me, and afterward Hopfins else. She had seen me dance on Hopsmoor. I answered, I have never renounced God and will never do it. God graciously keep me from it. I'd rather bear whatever I must. And then came also, God in highest heaven have mercy, the executioner, and put the thumb screws on me, both hands bound together, so that the blood ran out at the nails and everywhere, so that for four weeks I could not use my hands, as you can see from the writing. Thereafter they first slipped me, bound my hands behind me, and drew me up in the torture. Then I thought heaven and earth were at an end. Eight times did they draw me up and let me fall again, so that I suffered terrible agony. And this happened on Friday, June 30th, and with God's help I had to bear the torture. When at last the executioner led me back into the prison, he said to me, Sir, I beg you for God's sake, confess something, whether it be true or not, invent something, for you cannot endure the torture you will be put to. And even if you bear it all, yet you will not escape. Not even if you were an earl. But one torture will follow another until you say you are a witch. Not before that, he said, will they let you go, as you may see by all their trials, for one is just like another. And so I begged, since I was in a wretched plight, to be given one day for thought and a priest. The priest was refused me, but the time for thought was given. Now, my dear child, see in what hazard I stood, and still stand. I must say that I am a witch, though I am not. Must now renounce God, though I have never done it before. Day and night I was deeply troubled, but at last there came to me a new idea. I would not be anxious, but, 
since I had been given no priest with whom I could take counsel, I would myself think of something and say it. Just say it with mouth and words, even though I had not really done it. And afterwards, I would confess it to the priest and let those answer for it who compel me to do it. And so I made my confession as follows. But it was all a lie. Now follows, dear child, what I confessed in order to escape the great anguish and bitter torture, which it was impossible for me longer to bear. He then recounts to her the confession that I recorded earlier. Then I had to tell what people I had seen at the witch Sabbath. I said I had not recognized anyone. You old rascal. I must set the executioner at you. Say, was not the chancellor there? So I said he was. Who besides? I had not recognized anybody. So he said, take one street after another. Begin at the market. Go out on one street and back on the next. I had to name several persons there. Then the Zinkenberg, one person more. Then over the upper bridge, on both sides, I knew nobody again. Did I know nobody in the castle, whoever it might be? I should speak without fear. And thus, continuously, they asked me on all streets, though I could not and would not say more. So they gave me to the executioner, told him to strip me, shave me all over, and put me to the torture. The rascal knows one in the marketplace. He's with him daily, and yet he won't name him. By that they meant Dietemeyer, so I had to name him, too. Then I had to tell what crimes I had committed. I said nothing. Draw the rascal up! So I said that I was to kill my own children, but I had killed a horse instead. It did not help. I had also taken a sacred wafer and had desecrated it. When I said this, they left me in peace. Now, dear child, here you have all my confession for which I must die and they are sheer lies and made-up things, so help me God. For all this I was forced to say through fear of the torture, which was threatened beyond what I had already endured. For they never leave off with the torture, till one confesses something. Be he never so good, he must be a witch. Nobody escapes, though he were an earl. Dear child, keep this letter secret, so that people do not find it else I shall be tortured most piteously, and the jailers will be beheaded. So strictly is it forbidden. Dear child, pay this man a dollar. I have taken several days to write this. My hands are both lame. I am in a sad plight. Good night, for your father Johannes Unius will never see you more. July 24, 1628. P.S. Dear child, six have confessed against me at once. All false, through compulsion, as they have all told me, and begged my forgiveness in God's name before they were executed. They know nothing but good of me. They were forced to say it, just as I myself was. And there the writings of Johannes Unius close. We don't know what happened to his daughter, although we do know that family members were often at risk of being implicated. You can see that torture could be used as a targeted weapon. If the torturer didn't like somebody, then they could torture one prisoner into turning that person in, naming them as an accomplice. So in this case, in the Trier witch trials, if the prince archbishop feared the power of somebody, didn't like their popularity, they were going to die a terrible death. Of course, these abusive methods were not unique to witch trials. It's often been commented that Spain did not have a lot of witch trials, but it wasn't because they weren't following the same barbaric methods of inquisition. They had plenty of conversos and heretics to burn. They didn't need witches also. I'll go back to the writings of Canon Linden, our historian that we've quoted several times now. He says, quote, Meanwhile, notaries, copyists, and innkeepers grew rich. 
The executioner rode a pure-blood horse like a noble of the court, and went clad in gold and silver. His wife vied with noble dames in the richness of her array. The children of those convicted and punished were sent into exile. Their goods were confiscated. Plowman and vintner failed. Hence came sterility. A dire pestilence, or a more ruthless invader, could hardly have ravaged the territory of Trier more than this inquisition and persecution without bounds. Many were the reasons for doubting that all were really guilty. This persecution lasted for several years, and some of those who presided over the administration of justice gloried in the multitude of the stakes, at each of which a human being had been given to the flames. End quote. So that's pretty telling. Some of the people in charge would leave stakes at every site where a witch had been burned. The number of pyres was a source of bragging rights. The Prince Archbishop Johann von Schoenenberg was very proud of his work. Notches on the arm of his cathedral, I guess. Canon Linden writes another telling line. He says, Many were the reasons for doubting that all were really guilty. Many people did doubt, but they were too afraid to speak up. Now, earlier in the episode, I said there were going to be two heroes that I would tell you about. These two heroes illustrate why everyone was so afraid to speak up. The first was a man named Dietrich Flade. Dietrich might have been the highest-ranking victim of any witch hunt in European history. He was a prominent citizen of Trier, selected by the Prince Archbishop himself to oppose the spread of Protestantism. In other words, he was installed as a judge. He eventually became the vice-governor of Trier, and in 1586 he was actually selected to be the rector of the University of Trier, even though he was a layman, not a cleric. So probably the highest-ranking layman in the entire archdiocese. Now look, Flade's hands were not entirely clean. During his time as a judge, he had conducted numerous witch trials, numerous trials for Protestants and Jews, and he had sentenced many of them to death. But in the secular courts under his direction, they were usually much more hesitant and cautious in cases of witchcraft. They wanted actual proof. And there were times when he didn't even accept confessions extracted under torture. Gasp. Any sign of moderation, any lack of unbridled aggression, was viewed with suspicion. So it roused the opposition of the more fervid witch hunters, especially the suffragan bishop of Trier. Now, the suffragan bishop is somebody who worked under the archbishop. So the prince archbishop had many, many secular and religious duties. The suffragan bishop was a full bishop appointed to help him in his work. In this case, it was a piece of work named Peter Binsfield. So Binsfield was a well-known writer on theology, and his writings specialized in the idea of witch hunts. In fact, he wrote such an important and seminal work in witchcraft called Of the Confessions of Warlocks and Witches, it ended up being translated into several languages. The work discussed the confessions of the alleged witches and claimed that even if the confessions were produced by torture, they could still be believed. He also encouraged denouncements under torture, so one witch would denounce others under torture, and he considered this a valid form of evidence also. So this was bound to run headlong into the opinions of Dietrich Flade. Now, lest you think that Binsfield was completely unreasonable, he also thought that girls under the age of 12 and boys under the age of 14 should probably not be considered guilty of practicing witchcraft, should probably not be tortured and put to the question, except in some cases when they should. So this was a very liberal point of view at a time when some of the tribunals were condemning children between two and five years old to be burned at the stake. So, obviously, in some ways, this Peter Binsfield was a great benefactor of mankind. In fact, in 1589, 
he published a very important influential list of demons and their associated sins, including the demons associated with these seven deadly sins. And since no person could be considered truly educated who does not know the demons associated with the various deadly sins, I'm going to give you his list. Lucifer is associated with pride, mammon with greed, Asmodeus with lust, Leviathan with envy, Beelzebub with gluttony, Satan with wrath, and Belphegor with sloth. This Bishop Binsfield was a regular clearinghouse for helpful twaddle. So if you could not keep Asmodeus separate from Belphegor, or if you needed a theological justification to torture a 12-year-old girl, or a ready-made excuse to burn Protestants, you didn't have to look any further than the writings of Bishop Peter Binsfield. So he clashed with Flade, and Flade lost. Binsfield ended up accusing Flade of witchcraft when the problem actually was excessive leniency. So on October 3rd, 1588, Dietrich Flade made a run for his life. He had been accused of witchcraft. He had been too lenient with the witches. He had attacked one of their sacred cows, which is the use of torture in extracting confessions. So he knew he was a dead man. He ran for his life, but he made a great big mistake. He traveled in the company of the commander of the Teutonic Knights of Trier, thinking that this would afford him some protection as he made his escape. However, when the commander of the Teutonic Knights realized that Dietrich Flade had been accused of witchcraft, he said, I'm not helping any sorcerer, turned around and dragged him back to Trier to face trial. So nine days after Flade ran for his life, he's back in Trier. This was October of 1588. Now by April of 1589, Flade is actually formally arrested. So during those months, I'm not sure what they were doing, trying to figure out what to do with him probably. But in April of 1589, Dietrich Flade is arrested, and the rest of it is a foregone conclusion. He's tortured, he confesses, he names all of his accomplices, and he is sentenced to death. Really, you could look at the entire process after arrest as just the enforcement of one very prolonged death sentence. Because again, the conclusion was contained in the premises. So Flade was sentenced to death by fire, and because of his prestige, his power, and his connections, maybe he paid somebody off, we don't know, but he had a mitigation of his sentence, which none of the poor common folk received. He received a dispensation of strangulation, I guess you could say, because he was lucky enough to die by strangulation. Then they burned his corpse. So Flade was tortured and died for being too lenient, inadequate brutality against the witches. So if you wonder why there were very few voices of sanity raised against these proceedings, look no further than Dietrich Flade. But in case you aren't convinced yet, one of the most famous documents to come from that entire time related to the evil of another moderate voice. One of the people trying to protest against the mass hysteria was a man named Cornelius Luce. He was a professor of theology at the University of Trier. And by all accounts, he was a brilliant man. But unfortunately for Luce, he was also a humane man at a time when humanity had no business being there. So while Cornelius Luce is a professor of theology at the University of Trier, he watches some of these witch trials unfold. He just can't stomach it. It's too offensive to his conscience. So beginning in the early 1590s, he writes letters to the town officials in Trier and to the ecclesiastical authorities. He begs them to stop the witch trials. Of course, this has no effect. They ignore him. They do not stop the witch trials. Luce can't let it rest. He then writes an entire book against the witch trials. He writes the book mostly in secret, but then when he attempts to publish it, guess who he offends terribly? Of course, it is Peter Binsfield, the suffragan bishop of Trier. 
Why did Binsfield find the manuscript so offensive? Well, in the manuscript, Luce argues against the existence, the very existence of witchcraft, and especially against the validity of confessions obtained under torture. This is the exact same argument that had led to the death of Dietrich Flade a few years earlier. So once again, we have an educated man rubbing it right in Peter Binsfield's face. So before Luce can ever get his book published, it is confiscated by the Catholic Church, it is condemned, Luce is imprisoned, and as far as anyone knew for hundreds of years, the manuscript of his work was destroyed. Now remember earlier in the podcast, I told you about the work of a Dutch physician named Weyer. Johan Weyer. There's so many Johans in here. This Weyer had written a book about 20 years earlier arguing against the persecution of witches. From what we can tell, Cornelius Luce was very influenced by the work of Weyer because he makes many of the same arguments. We know that mostly because Luce was forced under penalty of death and torture to recant the work and his positions, and he does so in a very specific fashion. He has to sign a statement that basically outlines all of his arguments and all of his misdeeds. This recantation takes place in Brussels, March 25th, 1593. And again, a priceless treasure from the time. We actually have the signed confession of Cornelius Luce, and as you might guess, the specific articles that he must recant, that he has to confess to, are predictably goofy. I want to read you some of the points in this confession, but before I do so, I just want to point out, the manuscript was believed destroyed by the Inquisition and was lost for about 300 years, but it actually has been found again in the Jesuit library of Trier. So some incautious monk actually preserved the manuscript. One more point. It seems that some of the steam of the witch trials was already dying out by 1593. Why do I say that? Well, because Dietrich Flade had been killed after confessing a couple of years earlier. Somehow Cornelius Luce escaped with his life. Maybe it was because he was a priest, a churchman, whereas Flade was a secular authority. But being a priest in times past had never guaranteed that you were safe from being executed. So this might be considered evidence that the fervor is waning a little for the witch trial. Now the following excerpt is a little lengthy, but I love first-hand sources. They have all the flavor of the time, and so I'm going to read some of it. It says, I, Cornelius Luceus Calidius, born at the town of Gouda in Holland, but now, on account of a certain treatise on true and false witchcraft, rashly and presumptuously written without the knowledge or permission of the superiors of this place, shown by me to others, and then sent to be printed at Cologne, am arrested and imprisoned in the imperial monastery of St. Maximin. Yada yada, it goes on. He says, I am informed that in the work I wrote are contained many articles which are not only erroneous and scandalous, but also suspected of heresy and smacking of the crime of treason. In the first place, then, I revoke, condemn, reject, and censure the ideas. And now he goes through some of the ideas which he indeed revokes, condemns, rejects, and censures which include his erroneous opinion on the bodily transportation or translation of witches. So, in other words, he greatly regrets the error he made in thinking that witches couldn't fly through the air on broomsticks and pitchforks. Furthermore, he recants saying that this mode of transport is altogether fanciful and must be reckoned the empty superstition. Now, the second article that he has to recant, that he has to confess to, is that he had written some private letters to various people. And in these letters, he had been quite heretical. For one thing, he had said that the flight of witches is false and imaginary. Also, that these wretched creatures are compelled by the severity of the torture 
to confess things which they have never done, and that by cruel butchery innocent blood is shed, and by a new alchemy gold and silver is coined from human blood. Boy, I'll tell you, this man is brilliant. He is very brave too, though. This is scathing. He says that the entire process of witch trials is a new alchemy. They turn the blood of innocent men and women into gold and silver for themselves. What an incisive analogy. Now, the third thing that he must confess to is that he had in private conversations and in some letters accused the leaders of the people of tyranny. Johann von Schoenenberg, John of the Beautiful Mountain, and Peter Binsfield were tyrants, something that was undeniably true, and yet you just can't say that. And the next thing that he has to confess to is closely related. He criticizes the archbishop himself, the elector of Trier, for setting certain fees for the prosecution of these trials. So it's pretty awesome that the witches being accused and interrogated sometimes had to pay for their own imprisonment and interrogation, probably had to pay a fee for their own execution. You know, these stakes aren't free, and somebody had to buy the wood that we're going to burn under your feet. Now, the fifth article of his recantation gets a little bit more general about the idea of witches. He says, I revoke and condemn, moreover, the following conclusions of mine, to wit, that there are no witches who renounce God, pay worship to the devil, bring storms by the devil's aid, and do other like things, but that all these things are dreams. Now, the sixth article of his recantation seems to come right out of the work of Wire that we referenced earlier, because he says, Magic ought not to be called witchcraft, nor magicians witches, and that the passage of Holy Scripture that says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, is to be understood of those who by natural use of natural poisons inflict death. So, in other words, he's saying that the Holy Scriptures themselves do not back up the idea of supernatural witches with demonic powers. I want to go through some of his last points in a rapid-fire manner, mostly because it gives you an insight into the articles of faith of these witch burners, the sacred cows that must not be criticized. This I will just go through rapidly. He said that devils do not assume bodies, no agreement. You can't sell your soul to the devil, essentially. There is no sexual intercourse between the devil and human beings. Neither devils nor witches can raise tempests, rainstorms, hailstorms, and the like, and that the things said about these are mere dreams. That you can't see spirits. Spirit and form apart from matter cannot be seen by man. Every one of these opinions of his, even though they seem pretty commonsensical, were heretical. So Luce has to confess, he has to admit all of his errors, and he has to recant. But let me just say this. I think this was an act of mercy. I think someone in the church had his back because they took him out of the Archdiocese of Trier, where Binsfield and von Schoenenberg could easily have had him killed. They took him to the relative safety of Brussels, where he had to basically eat some crow, sign a confession. He was assigned someone to watch over him in case he ever relapsed, but then he lived. So like I say, somebody had to have his back. I have to admit it wasn't much of a life after that. He died a couple of years later, and they weren't two very good years. He was never allowed to publish again. The man who was his guardian, who watched over him, hated him. It was a man named Martin Del Rio, a witch burner extraordinaire. He wanted any evidence that Luce had slipped up because he wanted Luce killed. After Luce ended up dying, he actually died of the plague in Brussels in 1595. And after he died, Del Rio lamented the fact that he had died of the plague before Del Rio could have him executed. But this recantation of his tells you about all you need to know about the important issues of that day. 
In essence, he dared to point out that pretty much their whole enterprise was a joke. And this was the very enterprise that they had staked their reputations on, that they were making a small fortune on. So imagine if the only way you could be rich and respected was if people believed that Aquaman could swim faster than the Batsub. You would not take kindly to somebody who came and said, no way, the Batsub is faster. And that's about the position these people were in. It didn't matter how nonsensical and immoral their positions were. They were going to keep milking this cash cow as long as possible. So predictably, it wasn't rational arguments that caused these witch trials to end. It was the money drying up. I want to go back to the man who has been our guide from the beginning through this sordid affair, Canon Linden. He writes the following. At last, though the flames were still unsated, the people grew impoverished. Rules were made and enforced restricting the fees and costs of examination and examiners. And suddenly, as when in war the funds fail, the zeal of the persecutors died out. I like this priest Linden more and more everything I read from him. It reminds me of the quote by Upton Sinclair when he says it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So it's amazing how much more a threat witches actually are when you can make a buck off of them. So at last the Trier trials come to an end for the most part in 1593. Archbishop Schonenberg would live a long and oppressive life until he turned 74. He dies in 1599 and leaves a legacy of persecution through 22 villages in the region. Peter Binsfield actually died when the bubonic plague made its way right into Trier and took him off the board. He was 60 years old. Judicial torture would continue to be an acceptable form of questioning and accused for 200 more years in Europe. France would not condemn it until 1798. That's why Voltaire could write in his Philosophical Dictionary, published in 1764, in the present tense on the use of torture in France at the time. He attributes the development of torture to highway brigands, people who use thumbscrews and fire on the soles of the feet in order to get people to tell them where their treasure is, finds it a little bit odd that that part of the French legal code came from highwaymen. So Voltaire's work was immensely influential with the common populace. But there was a jurist, a famous Italian jurist, one of the greatest minds of the Enlightenment. We don't hear much about him. His name was Cesar Beccaria. And in his work on crimes and punishments, he writes the following against torture, quote, No man can be judged a criminal until he be found guilty, nor can society take from him the public protection until it have been proved that he has violated the conditions on which it is granted. So Beccaria's argument is brilliant. He says, in effect, torture is a form of punishment. You can't punish someone in the process of trying to find out if you should punish them. People can't be punished until they are proven guilty, so you can't use a punishment to establish their guilt. This argument was very influential, but unfortunately it was not available, or at least was not respected during the witch trials. All right, well, this has been Know Thyself Podcast. We have a little bit more witchery to go, and then we will be into some other more amusing manifestations of mob behavior and mass delusions.